I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. I think we have a pretty good list this week, so let's start running through it. Chief of Staff of the Air Force, the F-22 not in USAF's long-term plan from Air Force Magazine. Charles Q. Brown Jr. wants to neck down the Air Force's fighter inventory from seven fleets to four, and the F-22 is not on his shortlist. The objective mix will include the A for a while, the next-gen air dominance system, the F-35, which will be the cornerstone of the fleet, the F-15EX, and the F-16 or its successor. The F-22 is still undergoing modernization, USAF spokeswoman Ann Stefanik said. There are no plans to retire in the near term. How and when the F-2 will retire will depend on the outcome of the attack air study, she said. So this was the big news rock in the Air Force this week, the McLeese conference that happened. And I think it's interesting. I'm not really sure. Brown is intimating that F-22 might not be in it, but it's really up to the TAC air study. We've been hearing about this for a long time now. I'll be interested to see the results of that. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting that while he made the point that the TAC air study has to inform this and noted that it's going to be, you know, require a lot of modern sim. He came out with the, the conclusion that it's going to include the A-10 for a while. It's going to be NGAT. It's going to be F-35. It's going to be F-15EX. And it's going to be some kind of F-16 or its successor. So I feel like he has like a 90% solution there. So I guess maybe the TAC air study will just help with some numbers. What I was curious to see like how the wingman like some of the Skyborg stuff that's going on and, and some of the other, some of the other unmanned stuff, how that was going to play a little bit more. And it sounds like maybe that is also part of the attack air study. So see how, see how unmanned assets will play in that. I assume NGAD will maybe have some of that, but yeah, F-22, something had to go. So it makes sense that that platform is the one that made the chopping block. Yeah, the, the sustainment costs are pretty high on that one as well. Yeah. I was actually interested. They, they said F-16 or successor. What's the successor? Is NGAD going to succeed the F-22 or the F-16? Like, what do you think successor meant in there? Was, was that potentially an unmanned solution or something we already know about? I think that one goes back to the light attack one. It's when we have missions in uncontested environments, say if we have some operation in Africa against some of the terrorist groups or for supporting something in the Middle East or something that maybe, maybe there could be reasons to just have a light, a few light attack squadrons that are low cost flying hour, but have enough capability to do the job. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. It's just interesting. The F-16 was supposed to be the pure air to air, but so was the F-15. And so they pushed the F-16 in the air to ground. And now the successor of the F-16, <laughs> you're saying might just be a light attack aircraft, which looks nothing like an F-16. Yeah, I think the F-15 will probably be the, the dominant air-to-air. Not that the F-35 can't do some of it. That thing can carry so many AMRAMs and, and such that it makes sense that if there's if you need to take some planes down, that might be the truck you have out there. Just take having the F-35 as the, the, the targeting radar and coordination, coordinating function. And then the F-15EX is just in back there just throwing out missiles. So I don't know. I think they might have it covered there. Yeah, it's also sounding more and more like the NGAD is a single aircraft platform rather than a system that, or at least a program that will create a number of systems potentially in the digital century series. Yeah, you're right. They they could have some air superiority capabilities in there. They could have some suppression, the surface suppression capabilities. They could have all sorts of stuff in there. 
yeah, it'll be interesting to see how modular it is and how many different variants come out on it. So the next one we got here is DARPA seeks always on interconnected networks for multi-domain missions from DARPA itself. Well, currently mission networks, however, are manually and statically configured, stovepiped, prone to error, and don't scale easily. To provide continuously available network pathways, DARPA recently announces Mission Integrated Network Control, MINK, program. MINK seeks to develop software that autonomously reconfigures networks of networks, regardless of the communication device or networking resource. So this one is actually seems to be like a capstone kind of program for DARPA that puts together a number of programs like Dynamo Share, Stitches, and Network UP. It seems like is like going to be the backbone, at least in their mind, of the JADC2. I don't know if you got into it, but they, they had an interesting RFI that kind of goes into a bunch of more detail. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this kind of like a virtualized network that overlays all the existing networks and then kind of auto configures a lot of the interfaces such that data can flow from multiple domains and multiple systems in the way that JADC2 envisions. So I'm pretty bullish. I like what's going on here. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think JADC2 has so many challenges given it's the scope of it. DARPA's always been really good at looking at things differently and utilizing resources in places that the rest of the department isn't good at doing. So I really think they've, with you, I think they've come up with some really good capabilities here. I'm a little bit concerned that maybe they're not being used or not being uh, leveraged by the department in the way that they should. So I, because I think the transition of some of these tools that are like software generating, but also supporting larger capabilities, they don't fit into a neat bucket. And, and they're not a commercial tool. So it's not like you're buying something. So I feel like I'm more, I'm as curious to see how these work in action as I am to see how the department actually adopts them and brings them into programs like JADC2. But I'm sure I can think of a, a million other different applications that could use these as well. So yeah, I'm, I hope the department uh, actually takes advantage of all this good, good stuff DARP has been doing here. Yeah, hopefully they, I haven't really heard a lot of like win stories from those existing programs that Mink is going to put together, but I hope they don't try to boil the ocean, <laughs> to, so to speak. And can they just prove this out on one critical thing that's always been annoying people or that that would really create like a, a win that could get them some real staying power and ability to drive forward with that win. So I'm wondering what that first win might be and where they're going to try to get it into operations rather than really cool stories and really cool thoughts, but I haven't heard it like been adopted really. Yeah. And I guess the, the other thing I'd almost, I know it's not DARPA's role, but I feel like for some of the things they develop like this, they almost need their own, own little program. <laughs> yeah. And then they can consult with companies because they have the people that understand all the details of this and how to integrate it maybe how to make it work with a bunch of a bunch of federated systems that are really tough to pull together. It's like how to use these effectively. Because I do feel a little bit like if you toss these over to a program, the spin up time and to understand like what pieces would work best for what different data layers and things, it might be a heavy lift. I don't know for sure, but I could see that in some of like, maybe DARPA needs to be a little bit of a, of a little bit of a consultant for a few years to help programs figure this out, get the word out, get the, help them understand a little bit better. So I don't know. It, yeah. It's going to be interesting. 
Next one we got South Korea develops autonomous UAV navigation technology to avoid hazards in the sky from air urban air mobility news quote while uav and smaller drones are capable of reaching their destination autonomously it's hard for them to detect hazards such as high-rise buildings and large trees in real time and navigate around them south korea's agency for r&d in defense technology has developed a technology that allows unmanned aerial vehicles to autonomously avoid external threats and obstacles while flying so this is the result of a four-year program I think it's interesting because last week we were talking about the kind of rollout of the autonomy core system for Skyboard, and they did geofences, which I think is just like pre-programmed fences where the the system will not go. We we didn't hear anything about avoiding hazards in the sky necessarily. This is just for me is one of the things of our allies probably have some technologies that could be useful as well. And how do you know? Are they able to look at these things and build off of each other. So that's one thing that, that kind of strikes me. Yeah. This seems like a pretty important advancement in, in, in autonomy development. And it, it goes to your next article too, about the Triton, but yeah, it, it, this one seems to have such a dual use, a dual use capability as well, because Amazon's been trying to figure out how to deliver packages by drones. And so something like this, you could see being perfect for that. But then also if it's, if you're trying to get a swarm of drones safely into enemy territory to accomplish a mission, you might map out a route that evades any kind of radars or counter UAS systems so that so they can carry their mission off. So yeah, you could see so many different applications for this. It's pretty, that's pretty cool. And I really do, to your point, I really hope that the defense department can come up with, use this as a, as an opportunity to come up with some innovative ways of navigating ITAR and collaborating together with the the South South Korean agency, I guess it's Agency for Defense Development. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we can work something out there. Yeah. So you're right. I juxtapose that right next to Northrop Grumman to develop Sense and Avoid solution for Triton Janes. Sense and Avoid will help ensure our customers can safely operate Triton almost out of any airfield or airport in the world in full compliance with current and emerging aviation regulations around the globe. Our Sense and Avoid solutions enable collect active collision avoidance, empowering them to operate safely in commercial airspace. So here's a very similar kind of technology and that's being developed specifically for Triton, which is interesting because it's like the Navy's version of the RQ-4, which is being called unsurvivable and potentially might be retired pretty soon. But I wonder how much this system is embedded in Triton versus kind of an autonomy first that might be able to be put on board a number of different systems and insofar as it's more flexible that seems like a an interesting win yeah and it, it, the 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 south korean one we we're just talking about seems like a more capable one because of it's like it's more actively collecting using sensors to collect information and then generating different navigation solutions i i know this sense and avoid which is it's it just sounds like it has a little bit more like maybe topography stuff involved or some Maybe deeper, maybe there's like a deeper data set there. But the one thing on the on this Triton one, the ACS, the Aviation Communication Surveillance System, it is, it does seem to be a little bit of a of a playoff on the whole ADSB system, which the FAA or FAA, I think it was actually congressionally mandated that all civilian aircraft and military aircraft, although there's some exemptions, all aircraft have that system in place, which essentially allows the planes to talk to each other. 
and tell tell each other if they're getting too close. And if they are, they can they can work out a safe solution. So it sounds like it's a little bit of a maybe an advancement on that, which is being rolled out into on military jets and all the new civilian airliners. So yeah, this is pretty pretty interesting though. Next one we got here is Fast and Furious Army to test laser weapon as it looks to field rapidly developed system next year from Stars and Stripes. It took the Army with defense contractor Poor Technologies less than two years to build the first directed energy maneuver short range air defense system or DEM Shorad, a striker A1 vehicle outfitted with a 50 kilowatt high energy laser. Army officials want to field the first four DEM Shorads to soldiers by late next year to provide high mobility air defense protection against the world's threats like arm enemy drones. So this is actually a really interesting one. We were just talking about, I think a week or two ago, how the army put out an M ad that had stinger missiles within a couple of years, right? It took them three years to go do that. And now we have another version of the striker with a directed energy. And we're also talking about the potential for directed energy in the Navy, they had the Odin, the opti- optical dazzling <laughs> system, but now we're seeing the army kind of field one too. So again, I'm bullish. I'd like to see where it goes. It, they talked pretty highly about it in terms of automated targeting and actually being able to take out drones in terms of their sensors or navigation, or actually just down them like physically. I would actually like to see <laughs> what comes out of this. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, give, you have to give some props to the army's rapid uh, capability technology office too. They haven't been in existence for all that long. And it sounds like they're, sounds like you're doing some pretty good stuff. Yeah. I, <laughs> you're a little bit more bullish on directed energy than me. I don't know. I don't know why I feel like there's going to be a bunch of issues with it, but, but it does look very promising given the fact that if you could see some scenarios where if you had these strategically placed in certain, certain islands or certain areas around the, around an enemy territory or something, if they were going to try to use an approach where they were, you know, launching lots of missiles, you might not be able to do that with a kinetic kill vehicle. You may not be able to take them all out, but with a laser, if it really can do that fairly quickly, if it's powerful enough where it can start knocking them down, that, that could really be a game changer. Yeah. I'm curious. I still want to see the details of, you know, how long it takes to acquire the target and get the laser fired up and ready. And then how long it has to stay on the target. Like I'm still really interested in learning more of that. It says destroyed in seconds. So I guess it's uh, I guess it's pretty quick. What is destroyed in seconds? Right? Yeah, exactly. It looked yeah. like here they're talking about mortar fire. The M- DEM sure detects an enemy drone at about eight kilometers in the distance. And then they switch it over to mortar fire as opposed to an enemy drone. But in either way, I think, of course, there's just going to be tons of technical issues to work out, but it seems if you get it right, then the that's a real game changer. And one of them is on cost. They're talking about here. The 50 kilowatt high energy laser uses cups of gasoline, whereas a Stinger missile for the m ad fielded last month by soldiers in Germany can cost around 38,000 per round. <laughs> You're really talking about orders of magnitude of cheaper. And if you can make it effective... Lasers are a very different way to get at that much faster, much more targeted. I'm a dreamer on that one, but see. No, you could be right. I actually, I see here in the article too, that they do say uh, the laser weapons have been able to lock on and destroy enemy threats in less than 20 seconds. That sounds like a little bit of a long time if, if you have a missile coming at you, but it sounds, it sounds like they're really, they are focused on speed 
and, and kind of burning that down and getting that faster. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'm going to reserve judgment until. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. And getting a lot of those cheaper drones out of the air might be, of course, that's where you're going to start. You're, gonna, you're not going to start with the high end threats, I'm sure. I have to admit, I'm a little bit more bullish on your next and your other article on the microwaves because I watched the video and wow, it really, that one is, that one definitely has some, some potential for the drone threat. Yeah, that one. So let's just hop down to that. Microwave weapons could be used to destroy swarms of drones from the BBC. Quote, military researchers and arms manufacturers are developing directed energy weapons with the power to disable drones using lasers, particle beams, radio frequency waves, and more. One of the latest is called Leonidas, created by U.S. startup Aperius. Uh, it uses high-powered microwaves, HPM, to overwhelm drones onboard electronics. So there's a very different way of going at it. And I think it's getting at the same thing, but... I think, especially early in these early days, I'm glad to see some of the kind of proliferation of different approaches. It's not duplication, it's you know, overlapping um, and differing perspectives and seeing which one works the best. So, so apparently you, you actually watched it in action. They're actually talking a lot in that article about how China and Russia are using potentially microwaves, these, ty these types of systems to actually just like disrupt humans and cause bad health and other types of like system problems by just directing them at, I guess, our buildings and stuff like that. So oh, yeah, here's yeah. another interesting part. Yeah, that, yeah, that one's going to be, that investigation is going to be interesting. Definitely sounds like Russia is uh, doing that. Yeah, this one though, I guess the reason I like it is it's, it's simple. Going to Dan Ward's kind of simplicity cycle where, you know, you don't need, you don't need to have super high levels of targeting. You don't need to have a, a bunch of supporting maybe chemical using chemical lasers or other things that you need to replenish or I don't know. It just seems like it's a more straightforward approach to you see a bunch of drones coming and you have a very, you have a dish that has a wide range and can just take them down. In one demonstration they did, they were able to disable 66 drones that, that were sent to try to swarm the system. So I don't know. Yeah, I do. I'm bullish, more bullish on this one. Yeah, that's this. I think this is this one could actually be a pretty interesting one as well. I'm not like fixed on directed energy, but directed energy has some other interesting properties. So we'll see what wins out. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot of people in the military looking at this quite closely. So let's move on to the next one. One, one last thing. On, one last thing on that one, Eric. Though one, one thing you one thing you pointed out, I think is is important though. It sort of sounds like th like these companies are not even doing this in response to to like government requirements. It sounds like they're just they're just out there building some things using smart, I don't know if they're using VC money or whatever, but using their own money to develop this and then showing the potential to the government. So I, just to highlight the point that you made about lots of different options, it also sounds like maybe the commercial sector is actually driving us, driving us to reconsider assumptions we might make for how we deal with the threat and using their own money to do it. Interesting. Yeah, there's... It, and I guess it's not just in the drone world. The drone world seems pretty cutthroat these days, and yeah. as well as the counter drone world. But the space world is also coming out with a number of, it seems like a number of these unicorns are actually popping up. And we'll see like whether they're actually worth it or not. Yeah, you know, I'm just going to jump to this one here. Arcit raising $400 million with a SPAC to launch quantum encryption satellites in 2023 from Space News. So... First, I'll just mention a SPAC is making a comeback here. It's a special purpose acquisition company where a company that really has no commercial operations, 
is formed through basically a holding company that will then allow it to raise capital through an initial public offering. So it's a pretty, it's a way to get a bunch of capital before like for pretty R and D or product development intensive activities like spaces, right? So Arkit, what are they doing? Arkit is not disclosing who is building the satellites, which will support quantum encryption technology, which it calls quantum cloud. The startup says this technology will secure communication links of any network device against hacking, including attacks from quantum computer. So that's pretty interesting. And I'm sure if they're able to launch these types of satellites in 2023, they're going to want to sell it back as a service to probably DOD and numerous other high-end customers or enterprise customers. So uh, again, this gets to your point of companies kind of finding a space that's interesting and that they know is important, putting out products and then hoping to sell it back to the government when the government didn't have the requirement. So we'll see how that works out. I am super bullish on, on quantum just in general. It just the advances that have been made. I, I remember reading about it just like a few years ago where it was like, the, it was still like conceptual. And then now to see actual systems being built using it. I wonder, is, is this quantum, I wonder, are they using quantum or are they just using a mechanical or some analog, some, some other type of system that makes it, I guess they are using like quantum encryption. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> You're right. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Quantum they're, they're using the encryption piece of it, which it might be different than like the, no, I guess they have to have the data links too. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. No, I think, but you're right. It, it is moving pretty fast. And this is one of those kinds of next waves that will be huge and transformative. And I think everyone sees that it's AI, then blockchain, then quantum. I wonder if quantum is going to get to scale before blockchain. I don't think so. Uh, there's a lot of development left to do, but I was pretty skeptical a few years ago and now I'm, I'm coming around as well. I think what's going to be the more interesting piece is, yeah, I'm with you. I think blockchain is going to take a little bit longer for like governments to use at scale. I could see quantum becoming more readily available before we actually get our cybersecurity house in order, <laughs> where we, we finally spend billions of dollars to get NIST 800 con- controls in place. And then all of a sudden it's, we're in the quantum age. (laughs) It's yeah, I guess we don't need to worry about that as much anymore. So that'll be interesting to see how, see, see who wins on that one. Yep. Next one, we got two men accused of illegally obtaining, selling Air Force technical data from the Air Force Times. So there's a guy that was accused of selling at least 1,875 sets of data known as technical orders to a guy named Mark Chavez, 53, between 2015 and 2020. And apparently this kind of may have originated from Ogden Air Force Logistics Complex in Hill Air Force Base. And that includes depot work on the F-35, the F-A-10, C-130, T-38, Minuteman, and the Minuteman 3 nuclear missile, as well as other systems. So here's another, nothing really much here to, to say other than security is always an issue. And China probably has a lot more information on our systems than we would like them to have. Yeah. The human threat is, is always the greatest one. Most of the cybersecurity hacks are usually from some kind of social engineering. A lot of our, a lot of these kind of things are, they're hard to prevent because you can't like, can't monitor everybody every second, but yeah, this is really unfortunate. <laughs> it is interesting though, like to me that China targeted kind of the tech orders, it, it, it shows to me, it shows a little bit about where their head might be in, in space, in the, in their progression where before they wanted to steal all like the design and development technical data. And 
maybe they feel like they've gotten to a point where they actually understand that space pretty well. And then I feel like they went after a lot of manufacturing stuff. Like how do you manufacture things? And then now it sort of seems they're like, how, how do you sustain things? What are the right ways to sustain things? So I don't know. I, I, I don't know that like, this is actual trend or I'm just imagining it, but it would be pretty interesting if the Intel supported that their shift, their focus has shifted over time, but yeah. Yeah, that would be interesting. And, you know, I guess this also, this would be one of those things that zero trust people would look at and be like, dude, why did this one guy get access to every technical order, like on base? Like he had no need and no, no reason for probably be accessing all that stuff. And we would have caught it. Yeah. Um, good point. Yeah. But blockchain, Excellent. blockchain would also have been a, a solution to that, but it, again, lots of problems there, especially in scalability, but still bullish on, on blockchain. That's just going to take a bit longer. I think quantum and AI are definitely in people's mind space in the DoD, but blockchain most certainly isn't. So let's move on to building the software that helps build SpaceX from uh, space overflow blo- or yeah, space overflow blog. One problem with uh, Monolith is that you have to deploy all the pieces together. If something was broken in our shop floor system, we had a big changes that we wanted to release in the inventory system. We had to wait to deploy the changes. Said Mo- We were on a weekly release cadence and we needed to move faster. So the article was actually just pretty interesting about what was going on in SpaceX software. And they started with this monolithic system. And then over time, of course, you know, SpaceX started lots of years ago, like tw- early 2000s, but now they're trying to, they've been trying to move to a more microservices architecture and the whole DevSecOps kind of fad, but also the business process that seems to work, right? And it's helped them move fast in hardware. And it'll be interesting to see how much those processes and software, whether they can translate into hardware themselves and in, in combining a lot of those functional areas into one kind of continuous feedback process. But also just more generally, how is that going to transform the industry and the space? You know, interesting stuff. Yeah. And I feel like in some way, SpaceX was doing DevSecOps for the hardware piece before there was like DevSecOps, just from reading some of Elon Musk's Musk's management style and the way that he organizes teams and such. It's almost, he always made sure that everyone was integrated, that the communication links were you know, tightly coupled. And if you got together to work on an engineering problem, it was like everybody was contributing to that and everyone was trying to solve it. And he empowered the teams to, to do what needed to be done. But now it's almost interesting that they made that, they made that jump or they invented that for the launch of the launch platforms, but now they're only now doing it for software. It surprised me actually a little bit that they hadn't been doing microservices before now. Or, or maybe they were just expanding it to their kind of business solutions. But yeah, definitely doesn't surprise me that they would be doing this. I did think it was interesting, Eric, we've talked before about having product management and engineering being on the same team versus like the handoff of people who are developing the next product versus people who are developing the current product or just modifying the current product. It's interesting. They made the point that the mindset of SpaceX is that you can only reach mastery if the person who is able to create the change is the same person who understands what must be changed. So it shows like they really do integrate their product management and engineering teams together so that there's not that handoff that can result in mis- miscommunication or misunderstandings or bad products or whatever. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, you were right though. It seemed like they were more talking about like the business enterprise stuff 
where maybe they had been doing it in a different way for the actual launch vehicles themselves. Because I, I did, I have heard several times that they would actually have a test bench of pretty much a deconstructed system and they would push a lot of updates instead of till they would, they would push it there and be able to test it out. And then that would give them confidence. So I wonder how, how much further they've gone there and maybe even having an abstraction layer that everyone in the DOD has been trying to go for, for the last couple of years. Yeah, you're right about, you're right about that. I, I, I was thinking SpaceX, but Tesla for sure. I've read that they do, they'll send software updates to cars sometimes multiple times a day if, if it's needed. But yeah, they definitely understand, they definitely have understood this before now. So maybe they're just expanding the usage of it. Yeah. So from SpaceX to uh, Rocket Labs, here's a quick, here's a quick uh, title. Electron launch fails from Space News. Quote, the rocket was carrying two imaging satellites for geospatial intelligence company Black Sky. The previous Electron launch in March also carried a Black Sky satellite as part of a rideshare mission, which failed. The set, that launch failed the second failure. In, so this is the second failure of the Electron in less than a year and the third in 20 launches. So here's a competitor, Rocket Lab. They've had poor Black Sky. That was their customer twice in the last two failures in, involved their satellites. But I, that's what you get uh, insurance for. I, I wonder what rates they're going to be paying in the future. But I guess this just goes to show launches is hard. And as they say, hardware is hard. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm blown away a little bit that Black Sky would actually use an unproven company to launch geosatellites. Typically, geosatellites are just more complicated and expensive. And they, they just, they're just something you want, like, you want reliability for because you don't want to have to rebuild those things. It can take years sometimes to rebuild them. So yeah, I was a little bit surprised, that, especially that they gave him a second shot. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they stick with them. But I, yeah, it's also did Electron. I'd love to see like a root cause analysis that happened after the first one. Did they have some of the same issues happen on this one or are these different issues and like understanding why they weren't able to test those out or capture the uh, lessons learned from the previous ones if they were duplicating errors. So yeah. The just want to be interesting to learn more about if they if they if they ever share it. Yeah, I looked up. I I pulled the article back up. It didn't say it was in geosynchronous orbit. It's a geospatial intelligence company, Black Sky. But you know, oh, did it? okay. Yeah, I don't think it's a geo geosynchronous orbit because I don't even know if if the electron will will get your payload up there. Yeah, that's that was the other. Yeah, I think you're right. Actually, geospatial. They're feeding into a geospatial data platform. But they're, they are, they're going in Leo. Okay. So uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't even think, I think that they don't even use the SpaceX Falcons for uh, geosynchronous. Yeah. Those are pretty much exclusively the ULA RD-180s. Yeah. Okay. So let's just stick with the space world here for one more second and go back to China scare. <laughs> China's new bid to take on Elon Musk Starlink, state-owned satellite company or enterprise from the South China Morning Post, known as... China's satellite network group, the young company is tasked with launching low Earth orbit LEO satellites into space, beaming internet services to anywhere on the planet. The company has no official website at the moment, and the government has yet to release any information about the firm's organizational structure. So it doesn't really seem like there's much going on here other than we want to be able to compete. It, it feels kind of good that at least it's a state-owned satellite enterprise rather than like an organic kind of a uh, mess of startups trying to rush into the space. 
Yeah, it makes sense. Most of the the Chinese companies, the Chinese innovation uh, ecosystem is pretty much tackling every high-tech problem. So this kind of seems like it's almost surprising that they weren't doing more of this. But yeah, they have to be looking at the US and other countries and seeing this proliferation of LEO satellites as being developed super cheaply, super fast with increasing capability and going, yeah, we got to get in that business. And, and China's already a, a very robust, they have a lot of experience in space and they, under, they understand how to build stuff for space. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Guess we'll, guess we'll see what kind of stuff they launch. But yeah, I'm sure it's much more difficult than uh, SpaceX is making, making it look, putting those satellites up there. They're, they're continuing, like every week, I feel like they're saying there's some kind of like Starlink launch. So I wonder what that, that constellation's at right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder at what point you, we, we're going to be, we're going to have four or five, if they actually, if, if China's successful here, we'll have three or four services to pick from. We'll actually have like competition for, for satellite, satellite Wi-Fi. That'll be pretty nice to have. Yeah. But I'm not signing on to the Chinese version. No, I don't think I'll sign on to that one either. <laughs> All right. Next one we got is cannibalized parts systems that sailors can't fix. LCS maintenance woes continue to get worse. Watchdog warns from the Navy Times. In its analysis of 18 LCS, that's littoral combat ship delivery orders, 16 of which were for minor or routine maintenance, GAO found that there were 651 contract change requests for growth work. And that 52% of those requests involved work that emerged only after the ship was available or was in the availability. A senior Navy maintenance official say that the amount of growth work on the LCS is, quote, unbelievable, the report states. So I don't think this is uh, much of a surprise to anybody, but it's not it's not just that there's a lot of growth work and maintenance trouble here for a system that was supposed to be touted as low maintenance for the whole purpose of it. And this actually is what kind of gets me about some of the sustainment planning stuff that's coming out, especially there was a provision in the last NDAA, but that just because you're planning for lower maintenance costs doesn't mean you actually attain them when those plans actually corrupt the development process and you don't have a good process for getting out a product that works. Yeah, I, I think that's right. But I do think I have a lot of sympathy for the product support people because they're often in the boat of raising red flags during development and saying, hey, this is not going to be great for the maintainers. And sometimes the focus is just so much on, let's try to get the capability right, that even if you get the capability right, sometimes you've, you've hosed up the product support piece so much that it makes it sustainable. So I think this could have been one of those cases where even if this system was working really well, even if it didn't have all these other issues, the main, just the maintenance piece is, is this, is a such killer that it wouldn't, it may still not be, it may still not be a viable system, but yeah, when you combine the capability issues with just what seems, I don't know if you know how you fix this, just reading through this and reading the GR report, the last one, the March one, I don't even know how they fix this. How much sunk cost do they keep going with here before they just say, we need to move on to a new system. I hope the Navy is thinking of a backup plan for the system and not not putting all their eggs in this basket but i think the frigate's the backup plan right oh is it okay i, I think so but i would actually push back a little bit because it's, i do i also feel for the life cycle product support guys but it seems like it's just let's just go back to the budget process right that forces the hands of a lot of folks to be like we have to get into procurement because procurement dollars are staring us in the face and it's too much trouble to reprogram that money and push everything. So 
hell or high water, this thing is going into production. And so that's how they get shifted or they get, they get shafted <laughs> is the, perhaps the right word there. But it <laughs> seems like if you just had a good pr- development process where you get out, ships are a little bit interesting because they're, it's, it's much more difficult to do like a minimal viable product and then iterate through that. But you would think that if they had a good relationship with the users and making sure that they're informed on the design and, and the progress, that they would be able to make some of these trade-offs earlier that would help the maintainers. It's, did the sailors really need a 40-knot speed? And what did that 40-knot speed do to the rest of the design? And right, it's maybe just some better interaction between the testers, the users, the maintainers, and the developers back to what we're talking about before the product management mindset, rather than program management mindset, that would have actually cured some of these issues. And I'd be curious to see if anybody else ever, if they did, or if there's been work to actually like model how this could have been like using digital engineering if you had come up with different scenarios for the system and said, and they did have a couple of variants here. If you came up with a lot of system to optimize and say, give it all the variables and say, what's the most cost-effective range, speed, size, all that stuff. And let some algorithms kind of chew on that for a while. I'd be curious to see what they would have came up with. Did we sub-optimize just because of like un- almost unexplainable requirements that, so- that sometimes are done? 20 years ago, and then nobody really questions them because they're become de facto or would they, or would they have come up with the same thing? Like maybe the Navy pick, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see if somebody had done that exercise. The Navy, at least in its 30 year shipbuilding plan from December, 2020 had, I think it was more than 30 is what this chart's looking like littoral combat ships that they're expecting to keep through 2040 and then not retire the last LCS until almost 2050, 2049 timeframe. So I don't yeah. think that's realistic. <laughs> Maybe that's just what they have in the official numbers to get to their 355 or 400 or whatever the number is these days goal. But I'd be interested to think, see what they, what's actually going to happen with the LCS because they can't fixate on numbers. This is cost of money, right? Yeah. And I don't, I also don't know, I don't track this, the Navy stuff as closely sometimes, but I don't know what the, like the appetite on the hill is like, is this one of those protected programs that even if the Navy said they didn't want to buy it anymore, they'd still would be told to buy it. And they are, have they just accepted that or are they, are they trying to come up with a backup plan? And then it's just, it just hasn't been formalized yet. <laughs> and so they're just going with the current plan right now, but maybe in the next year we see them all of a sudden come out and say, here's a new plan that we're going to retire all these LCSs and not build anymore. And and maybe they can get Congress to buy off on it. Yeah, that would be interesting to see. Yeah, when they come up there, they're going to have a lot of hard questions. Like none of the mission modules actually functioned. That's what really got me of the LCS. It was like, we're not just building the ship. We're doing a huge, big build of three different mission modules and the ship simultaneously, which was pretty risky in of itself. But we're retiring all of the the mine countermeasure. Mine countermeasure is one of the modules for the LCS, which of course, hasn't been fielded yet. And we're going to retire a lot of mine hunters. So the Navy, it looks like, is just going to have zero mine hunters for the future. Does anyone care about that? I don't know. No, oh, those poor dolphins. <laughs> yeah. I was blown away when I looked at, I remember looking at this like a years ago, and I always thought that this was a modular, there was one platform that was modular 
that could do different things. I always had this in my head the way that it was originally sold. When, and then when I read something about how different there's, I don't know if it's an independence class and there's like a freedom class or something, yeah. but like how different those two ships are there, it would almost be like building, it almost would have been like the F-35 program, building a fighter and a bomber. They're so different. And it just, it just, that really stuck out to me as man, just, I think maybe they, they killed themselves from the beginning just by trying to build two configurations, like the burden on the team must've been immense to manage those two different configurations and all the disparate issues with each. So I don't know, just, yeah. Another point that LCS sounds like it's in rough shape. So let's just jump over to the army discloses hypersonic LRHW range of 1,725 miles. Watch out China from breaking defense. These weapons will depend on targeting data from long range sensors, army joint and intelligence agency shared over a joint all domain command and control JADC2 network. And they'll rely on artificial intelligence to swiftly spot targets, prioritize among them, and propose the best weapon to fire. So there wasn't really too much on the LRHW long-range hypersonic weapon besides its like new speed or, or its, its new range that, that's being touted. And of course, that has like a common component with the Navy's hypersonic missile as well. So we can assume that it will be of a similar range. But I just thought it was also interesting that they're touching on how are they going to target with that weapon? And one of the things that we've heard been complained about from the Air Force is the Army wants its own like satellite systems to do this. So it'll be interesting to see, okay, the Army is moving in on the LRHW and other long range fires. Will it also provide its own targeting solutions or how interconnected will that JADC2 network be? Yeah, I thought that, I thought the LRHW was going to use the same glide body as uh, as the army's the army is is going to be churning out here yeah, i think they actually are producing those so i thought they were just adapting onto that something more unique for for launching from ships but yeah i can't imagine i can't imagine they're going to build a whole new constellation because the same kind of issues they have are going to be the same issues that the Air Force has and that the Army has when they launch these. If the Army's firing them from a land, from a mobile vehicle, they're going to have target solutions along the way as well. They're going to have to be able to keep track of it and, and maybe adjust course or something. But so I can't imagine that they wouldn't actually use the same system for doing that. If I, I feel like if the Army and the Navy went their own separate ways, trying to build separate systems for the same kind of missile i feel like they would i feel like somebody would call that out and they probably would get forced to work together here's the question what's in the army's inventory right now that would provide that long-range sensor no that's true it might be mda i don't know if there's mda assets that would be used to help with that or or if they're relying on intel from (laughs) but that would come from they said long-range sensors army joint and intelligence agency so (laughs) MDA would go under joint and Intel would go under Intel. So what's oh, okay. the Army, right? Yeah. What are they, where are they bringing to this specifically? I'm not quite clear on that. I think the Army's bringing it. They're going to, they're going to have, I'm starting to appreciate their long range fires plan after, I, I think I read some article recently with the general. Yeah, you sent me that from. Yeah, uh, it sounds, I'm starting to get a lot more on board with it. And I definitely am not agreeing with General Ray uh, on that because I think their ability to, to stick some of these mobile launchers, which, you know, it, it won't have a lot of infrastructure with it. It's not going to be like, it's not going to be building like a land-based interceptor kind of thing where you have to put all this concrete down. We're literally talking about trucks 
where you could have some of these hypersonic missiles on them with different ranges. And you could just put them all over the Pacific and you'd have to make sure that you have the ability to, to target things, have the assets in place to support them. But you could see that being a real threat to the Chinese. If you wanted to put them at risk, stick those things all over the different islands, stick them in Korea and Japan, and that could be pretty troublesome for them. So I'm getting a lot more on board with their long. Cool. Oh, by the way, there is, I did see that the precision strike missile, which has, they, they haven't said exactly, but they say over 500 kilometers. Yeah. That is a brand new program that's coming out. That's start just starting up. That's another part of the inventory that I, I hadn't heard about until just recently. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to what you're talking about with uh, DEM Shorad, that came out of the Ricto from the army. I believe the LRHW is also Ricto. Do you know who's doing uh, the precision strike missile? No, it's well, it, I think it's going to be one of the program offices because it's a, it's going to be an MDAP program. Yeah. PEO missiles yeah. in space, probably. Probably space and missiles. Yeah. Yep. So let's move on to a, a joint program. Jake has the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center automates DOD's back office from 20 minutes to seconds from breaking defense. These projects tie in with the Jake's Joint Common Foundation, which he describes as an incubator for products and prototypes. He also noted that Dryad, a multi-award contract to provide Jake with data services will involve a ton of automation, including automated data pipelines, automated data transformation, and the creation of synthetic data. So this was a pretty interesting one. I almost wonder with this multi-award contract for data services, how much they're going to take a Kessel Run approach <laughs> versus they're really, like the Jake's really going to be out there supporting other programs and their contractors. So I don't know. What were your thoughts? Oh, okay. Are you talking about trade wins? Well, trade wins is supposed to be, in my mind, as I understand it, it's an OTA, right? For these types of services. But Dryad, uh, D-R-A-I-D, they say it's a multi-award contract. So this might may or may not be. I've, I didn't click in on it, but that might be within the FAR. Yeah, the, the trade wind was more, you have a contract vehicle that could provide different services to programs that they could tap into. Yeah, this one does sound like it's maybe a yeah, little Yeah, this one's not a, an other transaction. Okay, uh, so this is part of, yeah, trade uh, data services. To, so just automation, automated pipelines, automated data transformation. Yeah. So I think they're helping them build like these enterprise tools for the Joint Common Foundation, or are they actually going to help with putting applications through them? Were you clear on that from the... Because they also said, hey, we automated some of DOD's back office. So they were using the Joint Common Foundation to deploy certain applications, but I'm not really sure what their emphasis is. Yeah, maybe this is a backbone, like you said, a backbone kind of thing to support the Joint Common Foundation so that when they do these incubate, when, when they run some of these prototypes and kind of commercial products through there, they have the data services that they need to tap into to do the learning and training and all that stuff for the AI. That, so that would make sense. I, and the creation of synthetic data makes sense for that too, because in many cases, they still, they won't have access. We're a long way from DOD having assist, having all the data accessible and being able to retrieve it in a timely manner. So having that synthetic data is probably really important for, for some of the learning piece on this, but definitely I am 100% on board with, I, I feel like sometimes we focus so much on the mission stuff and sometimes we're not as focused on the business side. And from a morale perspective, I'll just say that 
getting some of this business process automation in place, helping those day-to-day tasks that kind of steal a lot of time away from, from military members, anything that can be done on that end, I think will pay a lot of dividends because people spend a lot of their day dealing with stuff that they probably shouldn't have to deal with. So yeah, good to see that. Good to see that they were able to reduce some of these processes from 15 or 20 minutes to seconds. That's really impressive. Yeah, I'll be interested, at least with with the Jake, to see what happens in, in terms of the Joint Common Foundations. Going forward, it looks like they're going to have a lot of support. <laughs> so it doesn't seem like this is like a, a temporary thing. But with the Jake and with all this uh, kind of data services, it seems if I were an AI company, I wouldn't want to do all that kind of labor services, repetitive kind of consulting almost work, right? Like I want to sell like an algorithm or, or some kind of tool that enables that, that gives me the same kind of scalability as software. It just, it feels right that you would see that the market potentially get segmented into potentially like firms that use the data and then other firms that kind of are there on site with the government, supporting the government in terms of just getting their data in order that makes it accessible to other people that will use that data and that kind of support the Joint Common Foundation. Maybe there's a good bifurcation of the industry that makes sense. Yeah, that that makes sense because I've read just from some of the AI kind of literature that for some of these algorithms, if a company, if a company develops this really unique AI algorithm that does great stuff, it's not easy to just hand that over to the government because there's so much that you have to understand about that algorithm, how it needs to be trained and everything and how it, where it makes sense to integrate maybe in an existing system and that you almost, you really need that, you need that company or that expertise to come with that, with the, with the algorithm and actually work with the program to figure out how to make it all, you know, tie together. Yeah. So maybe you're right. Maybe that is the model is somebody needs to work on getting the data, but then there's this other piece where, you know, some commercial company that has this cool thing gets a contract to come on with, come on with the department for a year, get them up to speed, help them understand how to do this. And then they can go off and just sell it commercially and DOD can, DOD can just continue to use it, maybe pay a license fee or something and get access to the latest and greatest. But Yeah. I, I don't know. It exists. If you look at the Palantir model, it seems like they're, they have like a black box on the back end and then they tailor that for every customer and they send out these teams to integrate with the customer. And there's a lot of variable costs in that. And I guess there's also defensibility in that too. Once you get in one of those customers, you're defensible. But I guess the alternative model is that you have these kind of butts in seats <laughs> that kind of support the government just getting its data in order, which is potentially is a little bit more routine. And then you can have companies come in and use that data owned by the government and like really promote competition. So the companies may that, that perform the algorithms may not have the same defensibility unless it just comes out of just, just like having a better method of developing their product. Yeah. I guess the one difference to say about what Palantir does and what I would envision, like a lot of AI providers doing is a, a lot of the AI is like a small piece, right? It's going to be the small piece of the platform. It's going to be like a force multiplier for a system, but it's not going to be the system itself, probably in most cases. 
because it's not, it's probably not going to be the provider of the capability. It's going to enhance the capability. Whereas Palantir's model is more of, we do everything. Like you just give us the data and then yeah, we'll tailor it for your particular need. We provide the entire solution end to end kind of thing. They even sell cloud services, I think. But so I guess that's the one difference in my head for this. Just thinking about the differences there. Yeah, so let's move into our last but related uh, headline here. DoD aims to transform itself into a data-centric organization from DoD. And the DepSecDef Kathleen Hicks came out with some data decrees. There's five of them. First, maximizing data sharing and rights for data use. Second, publishing data assets in the DoD Federated Data Catalog, along with common interface specifications. So that one seems to be doubling down on stitches, potentially. Third is... (laughs) And I approve, obviously. Uh, Third, using automated data interfaces that are externally accessible and machine-readable, ensuring interfaces use industry-standard, non-proprietary, preferably open-source technologies, protocols, and payloads. Fourth, storing data in a manner that that it is platform and environment agnostic, uncoupled from hardware or software dependencies. And fifth, implementing industry best practices for securing authentication, access management, encryption monitoring, and protection of data at rest, in transit, and in use. So here's a bunch of, here's five data decrees. They're pretty, I want to say, utopian <laughs> in a certain way. But I, I tend to agree that, they're, that I just fear, in some cases, the fights that may that may get started in terms of does the DOD now like demand all data rights or are they really just looking for interfaces or is it all interface that are that will be documented and and accessible and machine readable i'm just wondering how this will actually shake out in terms of kind of DOD industrial relations yeah no i think that's a good point i think the intent is less about getting rights to the software and more just ensuring that what what is generated from that software for for the military's use is not somehow I still have a cha- I still have a problem understanding this because I'm really challenged to see how data that is for the for a military mission somehow it gets proprietary or gets restricted data uses on it, data rights on it um, still not entirely clear to me I understand the intellectual property piece but still challenged on the data piece but apparently it is a big problem and so just making sure that you can actually send that, ship that data around to different places within the DUD, I think is, yeah, I think is the intent there, but I agree with you. They got to be careful not to go overboard. And then, yeah, companies don't want to work with you because you're going to steal all their data. Um, I think you're right. She did say maximizing data sharing and rights for data use. So I think what she's trying to say there is just that operational data flowing through the system needs to be able to be shared and used by the government. So like GPR on like operational data, but not necessarily every kind of application, like all the code behind that necessarily. So I think maybe I I was reading a little bit too much into that, but it's always interesting to see how a bureaucracy of diverse individuals will take high level tenants and then apply them. Yeah, and I think (laughs) your point to how this is implemented is probably the, the most important one because- yeah, how the how this flows down into requirements, into contracts, into uh, sub suppliers, all that whole chain. Does it get interpreted in the right way, or because I my understanding of the intent here was to mandate some not mandate, but to create some standards that would start to help neck down the you know multitude of proprietary standards out there, so that 
it was easier to pull the data and bring it in and do things, do what you needed with it. So how that is implemented though, do we all of a sudden start creating like we did with the net ready, the net ready KPP stuff. Do we create like 500 different variations of things and does it become so complicated and complex that we we're back in the same spot with the gig, right? Global information grid was supposed to solve some of these things too. And so it's, yeah, we're definitely going to have to definitely have to have to look closely at how we implement this in a way that doesn't put it back in the same place, but makes it a lot, does it a lot smarter. Yeah. The more I'm like reading over these five, the more I actually like them, <laughs> but yeah, I do um, too. I would actually like to see some, some like case studies of exactly like how this shakes out in very specific scenarios and like the range of different like issues that are going to come up because this is all very contextual based and like, how do you actually apply this in each context would take a lot of experience, I'm sure. And kind of nuance. Well, there's also going to be like who, who actually creates the policy and who does the man, what mandates are put in place, who is in charge of that. I think that all is important too, because it sounds like joint staff will have some kind of role in saying you need to use these standards because we're trying to create some joint joint data sharing. And then, but CIO is going to have a role and the services are going to have a role. So like how all that plays together, I think will be really important about, can we all come to agreement on single standards? Like you can almost see right now with right ABMS and project convergence and project overmatch, like the services are already doing their own thing. Can they, is it possible to come up with standards that everybody can agree to? Or is JADC2 already doing some of that? Yeah. I think this will be interesting to see how this decree actually comes out in, in the various policies and implementation guidance. And we'll definitely be uh, keeping a close watch on it going forward. So that's the week's headlines. Matt McGregor, thanks for joining me. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.